Genesis 45:16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat of the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each man and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, do not quarrel along the way. So they went up out, of, up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in vision, in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry them. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his son's sons with him, his daughters and his son's daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Let's skip down to verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is your word, and we come to it as such. Would you speak now to our hearts? Would you cause us to hear your voice? Would you instruct us? Would you build us up? Would you feed and nourish us? Would you convict us of sin? Would you remind us of forgiveness in Christ and the hope of the gospel? And Lord, may we know today that heaven is real. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Throughout our study of Genesis, we've seen this principle of God's presence with us, this, this principle we've called the Emmanuel principle, Emmanuel meaning God with us. 
We see it not only in the book of Genesis, but we see it throughout all of Scripture. It's a promise that we hold dear to know that God is with us. It's especially treasured by us when we experience pain in life or when we have deep questions to know that God is with us. But there is another angle on this promise that comes out of this passage that's before us today. We see, as we just read, that as Jacob was going down to Egypt, he stopped in in Beersheba and he had this vision. And God said to him, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And so the different angle that I want us to consider is this, that God is not only with us in the here and now. God's not only with us in this moment. God's not only present with us in what we're facing today. But he promises to go with us wherever he leads us. Now, this is certainly true when we think of big things in life like physical moves. You know, when we get a new job or when we retire or when we have some kind of major life change that God will go with us as he leads us. But this is also true when God leads us down paths in life. Not necessarily when we physically change location, but when circumstances change. You or your spouse are given a a life-changing medical diagnosis. Aging parents require you to change course to care for them. Maybe an adult child situation beckons you to respond. Maybe a crisis arises in your family that alters how you're spending your time and your money and your emotional energy. The course of life has changed. You see, God's promise is not only to be with us here. His promise is that He goes with us wherever He leads us. I don't know where the phrase originated. I just know where I heard it the most, and I've told it to you before, my dad. Change is loss, and loss is grief. I don't know how many times he said it. I didn't appreciate it very much as a kid. I didn't get it. But as I've gotten older, I've appreciated it more and more. It's true. Change is loss. I mean, it's by definition, change is a change in circumstances, a change in, in what's true and right or true and real. And so anytime something changes, you're losing something. And, you know, you, you think of this on the very small, insignificant things that we still get annoyed by. But, you know, your favorite restaurant changes their recipe and that sandwich that you love so much. And you go, and now every time you eat it, you think, I will never have what I loved again. It's gone forever. Remember when Coca-Cola did that in the 80s? New Coke. And, of course, it didn't last very long. Why? Change is loss. But it's also true on a much more significant level. That when we lose, you know, when we experience changes in life, we lose things that bring grief. And there's one thing we all know about change, and that is change is inevitable. So if we carry that thought forward, it means that grief is inevitable. We're going to face griefs in life from loss. We're going to lose things. Things are not going to stay the same. We all wish we could go back and enjoy the way things were. Time doesn't work like that. We make our plans. The Lord directs our steps. And all of us have had experiences in life where life has been turned upside down. Our expectations, our plans, the way we thought things would be. Maybe you thought you were in a job that you would be in until you retired. And you wake up and the job has vanished. Maybe you were married and your spouse walks away and your marriage is over. Or maybe you're a widow or a widower. Maybe you've had to bury a child. Some of you have. That's not something you ever even imagine, let alone dream about. 
Others of you have had health issues that have upended all of your plans. Everything you thought you would do now is forever changed. You see, when change occurs in life, especially unexpected and abrupt change, we face grief over all the losses that we incur. But when a God allows these changes, when He redirects our life, His promise is to go with us wherever He leads us. This was the promise He gave to Jacob. You remember Jacob had spent many years in Mesopotamia, Padanaram. You know, he went there to, well, he went there with nothing in his pocket. Went there to find a wife. Had no idea what was in store for him. Spent nearly 20 years. Came back not with one, but two wives. Finally gets to the promised land. Finally, life begins to settle in. We won't talk about the dysfunction of his family and so forth right now, but in a sense, he, he, he's, he's settled. And now in his old age, he's being asked to leave the promised land. It seemed counterintuitive. Why would God, who had promised this land to his grandfather Abraham and again to his father Isaac and again to Jacob himself, now tell him to leave? And yet that's exactly what God was calling Jacob to do. And not just to leave the promised land, but to go to Egypt of all places. You remember Abraham went to Egypt. That didn't go so well. And Isaac, when he faced a famine, he was tempted to go to Egypt. God specifically told him not to. And now Jacob thinks he finally possesses all of the promises through his family and through the land. But he really didn't. I mean, his family was messed up. He did, but he didn't. He's, he's yet to see what the promises really mean. He'd lost his son Joseph again nearly 20 years ago or more than 20 years ago. And now he's being called to walk away from the land of promise. How are the promises going to be kept? How is God's word going to be sure? Can you relate to that? Have you ever been in a place in your life where you, I mean, right now, all that's happening in the world in 2020, we've all had this thought, Lord, how are you going to redeem this mess? We dare say, how can it get any worse? But we've said it so many times, and every month we've been surprised. You've seen the memes. How can it get any worse? Lord, how are your promises going to be true? How can we see that you will fulfill, that you will do all that you've said that you would do? And so for all of the questions that were swimming around in Jacob's head, this promise, I will go with you myself, is the promise that Jacob needed to cling to. And it's the promise that you and I need as well. So whatever changes are on the horizon, there are things that you know about today that are coming. Maybe that you look forward to, maybe that you dread. And there are also changes that none of us know that are coming. And God is saying to us today that whatever it is, I will go there with you. Now when we left off in the story last week, it was this really incredible image of Joseph and his brothers being restored to one another that reconciliation, that all of the, the hurt and the sin and the pain uh, just completely demolished in this moment of reconciliation where they fell on one another, weeping and kissing one another. Brothers reunited finally after all that had happened. And it didn't take long for Pharaoh and his people to find out what all the wailing was about. You remember in the story where Joseph had escorted or asked them to leave, rather, his attendants out, so it was only he and his brothers in the room, and then all of a sudden the wailing. So you can imagine 
the, the, the rumor mill, as it were, around the palace. What in the world is going on? And you can also imagine that around the palace, it didn't take long for once the word did get out for it to make the rounds. Everybody knew. Joseph's family's in town. And verse 16 tells us that Pharaoh and his servants were pleased with Joseph's family visiting. This is remarkable to think about. You remember that the Egyptians didn't look too kindly on the folks from across the Sinai Peninsula. They didn't like them. They didn't respect them. They wouldn't even eat eat a meal with them. It was an abomination to eat with, a, with, with someone from Asia, with a Hebrew. So it's quite incredible then that it says that Pharaoh and his servants were pleased that the brothers had come to visit. These were Joseph's brothers. And I think this points strongly to the testimony that Joseph had before Pharaoh and the Egyptians. In other words, it was because of Joseph's life, because of his work, because of his witness, that Pharaoh and his servants honored his extended family, honored those whom they normally wouldn't honor. And this is the kind of testimony that you and I ought to strive for as well, that we are in the world and not of it. Does our work, the way that we do it, the excellence with which we do it, our commitment, our diligence, does all of that come together to show that we're working heartily as unto the Lord, that others might see that? Do our relationships, does our hospitality reflect a warmth and welcoming that mirrors the grace and love by which we've been received into the family of God? Is our free time spent in such a way, and do we use our money in a way that demonstrates we're not our own, but have been bought with a price? You see, the way we live matters. It's not that the manner in which we live is meritorious. We're saved by grace. Thank God we're saved by grace. But it does matter how we live. Because just as in the story of Joseph, our lives become a testimony. Our lives are the overflow of the grace that we have been shown that then become a shining light. And this is true of Joseph's life as a witnessing testimony that then allowed the royal family to greet and welcome his extended family. Pharaoh gives Joseph instruction to send his brothers back to Canaan to get their father, to bring him back and the rest of the family. He promises them in verse 18, the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat of the fat of the land. This is incredible hospitality. He sends not only the promises, but he backs the promises up. He sends these wagons, these royal wagons as their transportation. He says, have no concern. He tells Joseph in verse 20, I couldn't help but think of the Beverly Hillbillies. Remember when they arrived in Beverly? Except they were on a rusty old truck. And this, in this case, Pharaoh had sent the private, private jet to pick them up and to fly them in. You see, the wagons were a big deal. They're mentioned four times. There was something about these wagons that said, these are the royal wagons. Because when Jacob sees them, The wagons and all the stuff, that was what caused him to believe this news that for 20 years he had thought was not the case. So the wagons were significant. Pharaoh also says they don't have to worry about bringing anything because the best of all of the land of Egypt is yours. You see, it's not that Jacob's family is impoverished, but compared to the royal family of Egypt, this is a rags-to-riches story. Jacob had been striving for material possessions all of his life. If you think, he went to Padanaram with how much money? (laughs) Nothing. Nothing in his pocket. That's why he had to work. 
He didn't have money for a dowry. He had to work. He thought he was working for Rachel, and, well, we know that story. But what Jacob was finally realizing, what God was doing in his life, was showing him that the things that he thought would bring happiness, all this material wealth and so forth, that when God brings it to him, it's really not where the happiness is found. Well, Joseph follows Pharaoh's orders. He passes along all the hospitality. That's interesting in and of itself. There's no animosity in Joseph's heart. He has truly forgiven his brothers. He doesn't withhold anything from them. All that the Pharaoh commands him to do for his brothers, he does. And in fact, he not only does it all, he adds to it. Joseph gave them the wagons and the provisions and all that they needed, but he also gave them new clothes. And that's significant, isn't it? How many times have we seen clothes in this story, the significance of clothing. It starts out in the very beginning of Joseph's story. Why? Because his dad, who loved him very much, and Joseph was clearly his favorite, gave him a special robe, clothes. And then what happened when Jacob learned that Joseph was supposedly killed? Tore his clothes. What did the brothers do when the silver cup emerged in Benjamin's sack? They tore their clothes. So this is significant then that Joseph, as a further sign of their reconciliation, is giving them clothes. And these would certainly have been finer threads than they had probably ever worn. As Hebrew shepherds, they probably had only seen these things on royal people, not actually having worn them. The phrase that's used here for new clothing is the same one that is used to describe when Joseph came from prison in that one-day turnaround from his life in prison to now interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh and becoming second in command, that he was given new clothes, fine clothes. This is the same phrase that was used to describe what he did for his brothers. And so all of the brothers now enjoyed this special treatment. But there's one brother who gets a little specialer treatment. He gets a little bit extra. Benjamin. Joseph gives him five changes of clothes, along with 300 shekels of silver. That's no small amount of money. It's almost as if Joseph is making up for the lost years, making up for the years that he missed with his brother. One commentator suggested that the money and extra clothes were the birthday gifts for the past 22 years. Joseph was making up. But the important thing to notice is not the gift, but the brother's response. Where's the jealousy that we expect? Where's the infighting? Where's the, 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 the backbiting? Where's the rage? The brothers are finally learning. We've seen this transformation in them, and we now see the fruit of this transformation, that in this moment, they're finally learning the economy of grace, that it's all grace. To his father, Joseph sent donkeys loaded up with the good things of Egypt, along with more donkeys loaded up with all the provisions that they would need to return back to Egypt. And so all of these lavish gifts were designed to serve as proof so that when Jacob saw them, he would know that Joseph was alive, but not only alive, that he was indeed the ruler of Egypt. Can you imagine? I mean, we can't. For 20 plus years, you thought your child was dead. And then one day, the news comes that he's not dead, but just not that he's dead. He's the ruler of the the world power at the time. Second in command. He runs the show. I mean, you can understand why Jacob would have needed a little bit of time to process this, to know that the story is true. That's what the gifts serve to do. 
to, to tell him that the story is true. The brothers are then sent back to Canaan. And isn't it interesting, Joseph's final words to them. Look in verse 24. Do not quarrel on the way. <laughs> we, we don't even have to talk about why Joseph would need to say this. We all know. What were the brothers? What was their, what did they do? They fought. You know, we could say like all brothers do, but they did. They, they, they were, I mean, think of what they had done to Joseph. And so the temptation is that as the excitement wanes and as they travel back and as they imagine what they're going to say to their father and how their father is going to respond in all of this, that their, their tendency is going to, quarrel, to be to quarrel. Joseph's reminding them, do not quarrel. It's also a reminder that, they, that he's forgiven them, that there's nothing to quarrel about, and that if he has shown them mercy, then they can show one another mercy. If he has forgiven them, then they can forgive each other. There doesn't need to be any pointing of fingers or any suggesting that if you had done this, then this wouldn't have happened. Or why did Benjamin get five? And you know what's with this? Or we're going to take... I mean, you can imagine all that would have happened. And this is exactly what Jesus has taught us. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. We're to, we're to be merciful, not just from you know just sheer command. We're to be merciful because we've been shown mercy. How can we forgive horrendous sin? Because we have been forgiven of our horrendous sin. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is, in essence, what Joseph is saying to his brothers. And so the brothers went, and when they got to their dad's house... They said in verse 26, Joseph's still alive and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now I know that this isn't the inspired word of God and I'm not contesting what really happened here, but I have to think that this is an abbreviated version of what happened. <laughs> because Jacob's in his old age. The brothers know, I mean, they, they know the whole story now, right? They know what they did. They know their sin. They know their part of it. They know, they, 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 they know the whole thing. So I imagine that there was something more along the lines of, Dad, you've got to sit down. <laughs> We've got something to tell you here. And they tell him this. And what is Jacob's response? His heart became numb, for he did not believe them. Well, what would we expect? Of course not. Of course he wouldn't believe them. I mean, not only is the news unbelievable, but the fact that it's coming from these brothers who he's witnessed his entire life of being their father they're fighting. We've gotten the little bits and pieces that he didn't really trust the story of what happened to Joseph. Uh, we've seen the favoritism that he showed not only to Joseph, but to Benjamin. And so for 20 plus years, he's thought Joseph was gone. Now he's got to process in this moment, this whole new reality. And so the brothers begin to recount everything. They start telling him everything that Joseph told them. You know, the Pharaoh had said, say this, and then Joseph had recounted those words. Now they're doing the same thing. And as they're retelling the story, Jacob is, is processing their words, but he's looking out and he's seeing all that they brought with him. He's seeing the royal wagons. You know, the private jets pulled up. Okay, this is pretty telling. You know, this is, these are Pharaoh's wagons. Everybody knew it. The, the, the gifts, the animals, and as he began to see all of this and hear the words, the news settled in. And it says in verse 27, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. He responds, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. 
Notice what he's enamored by. Is he enamored by all the, the stuff? Like, look at this loot. Sweet. Wait, I get to ride in that wagon? Wait, that's my stuff? There's none of that. That's the old Jacob. That's what the old Jacob would have done. That's what he was all about. Here he says, no, it's enough that Joseph is alive and I get to see him before I die. And so Jacob is elated and he is revived by this news. The early church father, Chrysostom, writes, Just as the light of the lamp when the supply of oil runs out and the light is on the point of going out, suddenly emits a brighter flame when someone puts a little oil in, just the same way this old man, on the point of expiring from disappointment, next learned that Joseph was alive and was in charge of Egypt. And so from being old, Jacob became young. He put aside the cloud of disappointment. He repelled the storm in his mind and then found peace himself with God disposing everything so that the good man should enjoy relief from all these awful trials and share in the happiness of his son. We've all seen the lamp when the oil is added to it or when the the wick is turned up that the flame grows and the same thing happens in Jacob's life. And so he heads south. And on his way south, he goes through Beersheba to worship Yahweh. This is where his father Isaac had worshipped, Genesis 26. It's where Abraham had worshipped in Genesis 21. And it was this act of worshipping at the altar that demonstrates that Jacob's commitment is to the God of his fathers. That he's looking to God for blessing, but also for guidance. This is a big deal. This leaving the promised land, I mean, you think about it. Not just the fact that he was old and it was a difficult journey, but the fact that this was the promised land. This is what had been promised. This was this is what you gave me. And now you're telling me to leave it? And so Beersheba is in the far south. It's just before the border. And so it's, it's interesting that here he stops before he leaves, before he crosses the border, in a sense, just to make sure. He wants to be confident. And during the night, following his worship, God visits him in a vision and says, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And then God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Several things that are in this promise here. He reassures him that he is sending him to Egypt. God is sending Jacob to Egypt. It's not not his decision. He's obeying God to go. And he doesn't need to be afraid because God's going to go with him. And he promises to bring him back, although it will be after his death. He will be buried in the promised land. But listen to the words of comfort that he gives about his death. He says, Joseph's going to close your eyes. And what a sweet thing. I'm going to see Joseph before I die. I'm going to make it. This was a promise of God. I'm going to make it. I'm going to get to see Joseph. And Joseph will be with me. When I breathe my final breath, what words of comfort for Jacob. He also reiterates the promise that they will indeed become a great nation. This is the promise that God had given to Abraham in Genesis 12. And it's the promise that when he expanded it in Genesis 15, he spoke specifically about them going to Egypt without naming Egypt. In Genesis 15, we read, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. This is the beginning of that story. It's the beginning of going into a land that is not theirs, 
going to a place where they would become slaves, but going to a place where God would ultimately deliver them. And so the family of Jacob, which is to become this great nation, now heads on from Beersheba to Egypt. And verse 7 tells us that Jacob went with everything. He had all of his possessions, his sons, his daughters, his grandchildren. Everyone in the clan went. And this move that required tremendous faith, again, why would he have to do this at this stage of the game? There's tremendous faith that's required. God is promising that he goes with him. And then in the following verses, we get the genealogical account of the descendants of Israel. Let me explain why this is important. I didn't read through it this morning. I do often just read everything, but I, I saved us all this morning from not reading through that list of names. You can do it later. If you would like me to read them to you, call me and I'll do it over the phone. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be just as painful that way. Uh, but let me tell you why this is significant. When Moses wrote the book of Genesis, it's after the Exodus. And so he is putting pen to paper about what happened here. That before God's people even left, before they entered Egypt, this treasury of their lineage would point backward to, that, to, to, to the fact that God said what he would do, and he did it. That the people of God, now a million plus in number as they come into the promised land, would be able to read these words and see their forefathers and know that God keeps all of His promises. And the book of Exodus opens with this same genealogy. It's abbreviated in form, but it's the same genealogy that links the stories together and that shows that God is indeed the one who is at work. This difficult time, these 400 plus years of slavery was a part of God's plan. And in the same way, we are able to look back through the genealogies of Jesus to see the unfolding redemptive history that was accomplished. God not only brought this family from an elderly, barren couple, Abraham and Sarah, that seemed impossible. But you think of everything we've seen in the book of Genesis along the way everything that should have squashed the promise, every dysfunction, every sin, every famine, every war, everything that has happened that should have ended it all, God has preserved it. And He not only would now go with them into Egypt, but He would deliver them from this uh, hand of slavery back to the promised land. He would there be with them and give them the law and the tabernacle and later the kings and the temple. He would go with them even in his discipline of them into exile. He would be with them. And then he himself would come and walk among them in the person of Jesus. Jesus came not only to reveal the Father to us, but to pay the price for our sins. And his call to us is to believe in him whom the Father sent, to place our faith in the sinless Son of God. And so if you have never put your faith in Christ, then know that today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. If you hear Him calling, respond by trusting and resting in the finished work of Christ on your behalf. After Jesus died to atone for our sins, He rose from the dead. And before He ascended into heaven, these are His final words before He left. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, this promise and this command is to us as well, that He will go with us wherever He leads us. And just as He was leading this family into Egypt, for a difficult 400 plus years, He would also deliver them from that difficulty. He would redeem them. We know difficulty, we know suffering, we know hardship, but we are looking forward to the true promised land, to our ultimate redemption, to heaven where He will return as promised and He will deliver us from all of our sorrows, all of our griefs. He will heal all of our diseases. He will turn our tears into gladness. Our Deliverer is coming. He is standing by, waiting for the time that the Father has set for Him to come when the sky will open and peel back as a scroll. And at that time, we will know Him. We will see Him face to face and all will be well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the promise that you are with us. Thank you for the promise that you will go with us wherever you lead. Lord, as we face uncertain uh, times in our lives, we do as a, a country, but we also do individually. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know that you hold tomorrow. And so would you give us great confidence that wherever you lead us, whatever circumstances you bring into our path, that your promise is to go with us through that, through the dark times, through the the 400 plus years of suffering, through the, the trials of the 40 years in the wilderness wandering, and through our ultimate redemption until we see you face to face. Lord, we long for your return. We long for everything to be made right. But until then, may we know that you are with us, that you keep all of your promises, that you do what you say. And may we trust you completely. We pray this in Jesus' name.